Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Now brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hi, Caroline. Hi. How are you today, wife? Fine. And what are we talking about today? Well, today, I think of this episode as a bit of a sister to our Hollywood Horrors two-parter way back near the beginning of this podcast. Oh. Today, I'm going to be covering one of television broadcasting's most indelible mysteries, the Max Headroom Signal Hijacking Incident, and some other hijackings as well. Well, this is something I've never heard of. <laughs> yeah. Um... It happened in the 80s, so unless it was on I Love the 80s, which I'm sure it was, I'm not sure why you would know about it. Sean, the medium of television, has always been a bit experimental. Um, yes. <laughs> it was first available experimentally in the late 1920s, but television broadcasting wouldn't become really popular in the United States and the UK until after World War II when more improved black-and-white broadcasting became available. Often, Sean, you and I will watch clips of some pretty old shows, including black-and-white episodes of You Bet Your Life and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, our, our, our golden age of television goes from about the 40s to the <laughs> 70s. Mm-hmm. There didn't used to be the commercials as we know them today. Rather, a host of the show you were watching or another spokesperson would announce the sponsoring product or brand. Uh, it was, it's very jarring when you see it nowadays. But until cable TV really took off following the passing of the Cable Communications Policy Act in 1984, television was a lot closer to its predecessor, the radio, than we know it today. That's right, Caroline. And that brings us to today's sponsor, Winchester Cigarettes. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Originally, TV shows were more like filmed radio shows. In fact, most of the early ones were just filmed existing radio shows. And they were often fully sponsored by one entity. You had the Colgate Comedy Hour... Texaco Star Theater, and Gillette Cavalcade of Sports in the 50s, for example. Oh, I can't wait to watch Gillette Cavalcade. <laughs> Think of how smooth everyone is. Uh, smooth, but probably much slower than we'd expect nowadays. <laughs> Even with the wind resistance? Come on, those Gillettes. <laughs> it's kind of remarkable to see the growth that's happened in television in its roughly 100 years of existence. And just like with any other art form, television itself has plenty of true life mysteries. Mysteries possibly enabled in part by the structure of the very medium they occurred in. Um, explain. Well, because it is a broadcasting and originally the way to watch television, the way that the signal was given out to the world was much more like radio and... There are ham radio, amateur radio operators, so it stands to reason that some people might be able to figure out how to broadcast a television signal of their own. 35 years ago, this November, one of the strangest mysteries in television history began. On November 22, 1987, sportscaster Dan Rohn was covering the highlights of the Chicago Bears' recent victory over the Detroit Lions for Chicago's WGN Channel 9 9 o'clock news. In the middle of Rohn's segment, the screen went black for about 15 seconds and then some truly strange imagery popped up. Someone wearing a Max headroom mask and sunglasses came into view, rocking and swaying erratically in front of a rotating corrugated metal panel. Okay, uh, full stop. What is a Max headroom mask? <laughs> For those who don't know, including my husband Sean, Max headroom was a character who first appeared in the British cyberpunk TV movie Max headroom 20 minutes into the future. Okay, so he is... Was this a comedy? That's a comedy title. Well... I love British comedy, but it always is a uh, quote-unquote comedy. I disagree with that completely. Um, I don't know. I feel like this is one of those. This is one of those where it's like, uh, I guess. It's not funny, but... <laughs> Just a thing happening in front of you. Yeah, it's meant to be comedic. Um, it, it's satirical. 
It's very dry. I don't know if it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people say that about about uh, Bean. We know Mr. Bean is great. Yeah, but there's, you know, he's always fallen and stuff. That's funny no matter what language you're in. But this is, it's more weird. A headroom was meant to look like an artificially intelligent digital character with a computer-generated appearance, though his kind of uncanny valley look was achieved by an actor wearing prosthetic makeup and kind of shot under harsh lighting and in front of a blue screen with some audio and video effects. Oh, so I'm looking at a picture right now. So he's supposed to look like a CG image of some kind. Basically, yeah. He's supposed to not be real. He's Alexa, but in a body. Max Headroom, play my (laughs) podcasting playlist. He probably wouldn't do it very well. He's very glitchy. The TV movie was aired in 1985 with the Max Headroom show following in late 85 and 86. Really? There was a whole television program? Yep. And a spinoff of the original film called Max Headroom airing in 1987 and 88. They loved some Max Headroom. So they just dropped the subtitle for the... um... For the second movie? They figured you'd know who he was. Um, So if any of our listeners have seen Back to the Future Part 2, and if you haven't, what are you doing? You might remember the bit where Marty in 2015 goes into the retro-styled Cafe 80s, and he encounters some glitchy digital waiters in the guises of Michael Jackson, the Ayatollah Khomeini, and Ronald Reagan. (laughs) I forgot the Ayatollahs in there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And they're all taking orders from restaurant patrons. These AI waiters were inspired by the strangeness of Max Headroom, complete with glitches and stuttering and the weird, wavy background. And this is supposed to be funny in England. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny reference in Back to the Future, but, I mean, you could look up clips of Max Headroom. Maybe it's the funniest thing ever. I, th- I think it's strange and it's very stylistic, but there's no laugh-out-loud moments for me there. But it is satire. Of what? Um... Well, commercialism, which makes it ironic because Max Headroom became the spokesman for New Coke and even shared a commercial with Michael Jordan because the 80s were a very weird time. All right. So New Coke and Max Headroom, there's two things I hate working right together. (laughs) Uh He loved Michael Jordan. I mean, he's he's the greatest. He is the greatest. So back to the signal interruption, now that we know who Max Headroom is. So they're wearing a Max Headroom mask. So it's a full rubber mask over the head. Um, They don't say anything during this first hijacking, and there's no music. So I'm not going to play the audio because there's no point. First hijacking? Yes, first. So this was how long, like 15 seconds? This was about half a minute because there was also some cut to black there. Uh, You could easily find it on YouTube if you'd like to see it, which I suggest you do to follow along. There's one under the title WGN Channel 9, the 9 o'clock news, the first Max Headroom incident, 1987. And for this episode, I'm going to be heavily referencing the documentary, The Max Headroom Hijacking Incident by The Bazaar on YouTube. So you're encouraged to check that out, too, as well as some great articles, primarily from Vice. Oh, this is... So this doesn't look like the actual Max Headroom videos at all. This is just... It's like a really shitty version. It's like Max Headroom was put through a copier. Yeah, or like a uh, a TV access version of Max Headroom. Mm-hmm. Um, he's holding up a bag now. Oh, he's, it's a glove. He's putting on a glove. Are you on one that's like two minutes long? Because that's not this. And then he threw it. No, that's the second one. Oh, it says 1987, Broadcast Signal Intrusion Incident. No, it oh, has just, to be the WGN one. Did more than one of these happen in... What I'm watching is bizarre. Oh, yeah. So imagine that with, like, no talking or anything, but it gets weird. Yeah, so for this one, it's about 30 seconds long. It cuts into a sportscast, and it aired on the network WGN. Okay. But yes, he does look like a low-rent Max Headroom. Mm-hmm. This doesn't seem to be officially sanctioned by the BBC. No. No. So to pull off this kind of hijacking, whoever did this must have set up some kind of portable TV station, ideally on top of a roof somewhere in Chicago near the transmitters for WGN. 
and they, of course, had to set it up during a time when a lot of people in the city would be tuned into the network for the nightly news. This first attempt was not the success the hijackers must have been hoping for, because it only lasted half a minute, and um, the WGN engineers were able to quickly recover their signal. Well, but I, I don't know... How much? How big a disappointment could it have been? We, you know, what were you trying to accomplish? Well, we'll see with the second one what exactly they were trying to do. When the broadcast returned, everyone at WGN seemed quite confused, with Dan Roan, the sportscaster, chuckling, Well, if you're wondering what's happened, so am I. <laughs> and the telecast went on as normal from there. However, the hijackers were not deterred. The same night, WTTW in Chicago was airing an episode of Britain's Doctor Who, one of your favorite shows. Uh, yes, although this is the, um, you know, I don't know which, was this a Pertwee episode, you know? Uh, I'm not sure, actually, but it is called The Horror of Fang Rock. Oh. Now, WTTW was Chicago's PBS affiliate, so it would often play these sorts of overseas import shows. And that's where a lot of people would watch Doctor Who back in the day. Uh, that serial first aired in 1977 and is a Tom Baker story. Mm -hmm. I thought it was him. I thought he had big hair. Um, and a big scarf. Yeah. So a lot of people in America would catch Doctor Who via these PBS affiliates. Um, they would tape them or, or stuff like that. And that's how people in America got to know the Doctor. We, we've talked about this before off mic. Um Speaking of TV mysteries, can we just talk about how it's crazy that there's like a bunch of episodes of Doctor Who that you just can never see? I would really love to do an episode on Lost Media, um, is but it not all enough? of it is scary. So Maybe it's a Patreon thing. Maybe it's, well, you gotta get on Patreon, guys. You gotta get on. So on WTTW, they were showing this Doctor Who episode. It was after 11 p.m., and it wasn't airing live, obviously, so the engineers had already gone home for the evening. And that's unlike WGN when they were already, when they were still on the clock for the nightly news. They had to be there. And that lack of engineers at WTTW was exactly what the hijackers were looking for to score a longer transmission. They broke in during the episode, and what transpired was truly some of the weirdest stuff ever on TV that is, wasn't meant to be there. Is this what I was just looking at? Yes. How how long? So wait, how long after the original hijacking? This is a couple hours later, but on a different network. Oh. Mm -hmm. Because WGN, they had foiled their plan. They had taken the signal back themselves. So they wanted to break into a signal that wasn't as highly... Um, monitored i guess are you going to tell me how they did this and how i can do this <laughs> you shouldn't because it's illegal uh and we'll get into that later there are some theories um but no one truly knows how they did this in the uh so for this second hijacking it's the same person ostensibly wearing the max headroom full head rubber mask and sunglasses in front of a rotating steel background. Yep. And at this point, guys, I'm going to insist that all listeners find this clip on YouTube mm -hmm. and, and watch along with, because I, I don't even know what this is unless you're, you know, I don't know what this discussion is unless you, you're not going to be able to follow <laughs> unless you see what's happening. You got to see it. Um, we're going to play the audio in its entirety now, but if you'd like to see the whole thing, and you don't mind a bit of backside nudity, uh, you can find this particular second hijacking on YouTube under Max Headroom 1987 Broadcast Signal Intrusion Incident. Now for the clip I'm going to play, there's a slight bit of spooky background audio. Um, it's from the documentary, but it's the clearest audio that I can find. So just don't worry about it. There was no spooky background audio, but it was supposed to be very warped sounding. You should hook up with the old ones of your tribe. That is the only way to learn. I'll get you a hot drink, miss. Oh, I can drink some dry clothes. These are freaking nerds. <laughs> <laughs> These guys think I'm better than Chuck's worst. Freaking <laughs> Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Oh, 
Yeah, this tangent doesn't seem to make much sense. Um, much? <laughs> there are references to WGN sportscaster and Chicago Bulls announcer Chuck Swirsky. Okay, so Chuck Swirsky is a real guy. Real guy. Freaking uh, liberal. Yes, calls him a freaking liberal. Fake Max says the Coca-Cola slogan, catch the wave, um, before throwing a can of Pepsi. That was Pepsi? Yes. That's so funny. Why? Why? What is happening? I think it's to mock him being a spokesman. I don't know. He sings uh, bits from either I Know I'm Loving You or I Know I'm Losing You by The Temptations or Your Love is Fading by Chicago soul singer Lou Pride. That's the Your Love is Fading part. That was maybe the eeriest pre-spanking moment. (laughs) And he hums part of the theme song for the obscure animated series from 1959, Clutch Cargo. And also mocked WGN with the reference to taking a giant shit for all the greatest world newspaper nerds. Did he say take a giant shit? He said he has piles and he's going to like lay a giant masterpiece or something. It basically means I'm going to take a I I poop all over your network. A little triumph precursor. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that was Robert. This was Robert Smigel's inspiration. (laughs) No, I think he was already around at this. Yes, he was. Uh, WGN's call letters stood for world's greatest newspaper. So it's clearly basically saying I'm taking a shit for you or on you. Right. But this did not air on WGN at the end of the day, right? No, but it's probably directed at them and probably what they had meant to play. Well, is the beginning of the first interruption, is the first interruption the same as the beginning of this interruption? I mean, is it the same video? I think it, it might be. It looks the same. Um, but it might have been, they might have just fast forwarded to, I think it was pre-recorded and I'll go into why a little bit later, but I think, uh, they probably just fast forwarded to the real meat of the matter because they had already been cut before and they wanted to make sure they got all their ideas in, I guess. Right. I I would, uh, if you watch it, looking at it again, I wonder if, um, you know, maybe it's the same 30 seconds of him standing around and then he starts in with the weirdness. Yeah. And yeah, at the end, there's a man, um, probably the same guy, but he has the mask off now. You don't see his face. Probably has a dildo in the mask's mouth. And he shows Um, his naked backside while being spanked by a fly swatter by an unknown female. So that was a, you think that was a sex toy sticking out of the mask? That's what it said when I read everywhere. Was he holding it in his hand at the beginning of the video? Yeah, you had mentioned wondering if there was like a fake finger, but I think that that's what that was. Ah, interesting. Um, and then the mask is sort of peeking into frame, mm-hmm. like a little little voyeur there. Mm-hmm. And the the lady who is fly swatting his bottom uh, <laughs> is either wearing some sort of like French maid costume dress or like a German Oktoberfest barmaid dress, the kind that you would have seen in. Um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off yes. in the, the, the concert, or not the concert, the um, parade. The parade, scene. yeah. Yeah. Or um, in a, on a bottle of St. Pauli Girl. <laughs> sure. Or on Michael Scott's St. Pauli Girl sign. Uh, yes, even better. <laughs> it was my grandfather's favorite beer. <laughs> so right around the spanking, um, <laughs> WTTW was, thankfully for them, able to get back their broadcast signal. That's about when you want to cut it off. Probably before that but you know um, their signal was located in the Sears Tower according to station spokesman Anders Joachim technicians monitoring the transmission from WTTW headquarters attempted to take corrective measures but couldn't Uh, air director Paul Rizzo added as the content got weirder we got increasingly stressed out about our ability to do anything about it yeah you would be Mm -hmm. as soon as you saw a butt bear man ass on on your news station 
In the end, the broadcast only ended because the hijackers ended their own transmission. Uh, They probably were worried that the longer they stayed on, the easier it would be to trace their location. Right. So once they got the real meat of the matter <laughs> oh, so they were, out. They were getting onto the television frequency, do you think, and just blowing out the signal? Yeah, it's a signal hijacking. So they're just, they're just taken over, basically. Uh, the public was in turns freaked out, not thrilled, and or outraged. Nobody was into this? <laughs> Uh, there were a couple of interviews and like one kid was like, it was pretty funny. What a, what a <laughs> thrilling plot twist in the middle of uh, the doctor. <laughs> well, one girl, um, who probably is younger, probably a teenager or young twenties. She was like, Ugh, and now I'll have to tape over that. Basically saying like, I was taping Dr. Who and now I'm going to have to retape over that. Cause it was so weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a historical artifact and I hope she did not. <laughs> yeah. The news, including WGN themselves, reported on the hijacking, but with no additional facts yet in the case. The Chicago Tribune published an article soon after with the cheeky headline, Powerful Video Prankster Cook Cook Could Become Max Jail Room. Oh, the Cook Cook Could because of Max's <laughs> like the stuttery, tendency glitchy, to stutter? Yeah. Jail room, I mean, it doesn't, ma- it doesn't like rhyme with headroom, so I'm... No, but room and room, it's enough. <laughs> it's enough for a headline. An official investigation was launched by the FCC and the FBI as, at best, the hijackers would nab a sizable fine for having done this. As FCC spokesman Phil Bradford announced the next day, I would like to inform anyone involved in this kind of thing (laughs) that there's a maximum penalty of $100,000, one year in jail, or both. And there's a maximum headroom showing his butt on TV. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Dr. Michael Marcus led the investigation for the FCC out of Washington, D.C., and he theorized that whoever had done the hijacking had been located most likely on a rooftop on the north or northwestern side of downtown Chicago, which would have given them proximity to both the Sears Tower and John Hancock Center, where the WGN transmitter was located. So they had to be close by to, again, get that signal. The FBI, meanwhile, blew up high-res images from the transmissions in hopes of identifying one or both of the people shown. Yeah, let's really identify that ass. <laughs> Put them in an, in an ass lineup. They were probably hoping that they would see someone in, like, the reflection of the sunglasses. Luckily, at least several people had been recording both stations that night, and likely more for Doctor Who, because it seems like something that people would tape to have later if you're a big fan of the show, like mentioned. These people donated their VHS recordings to the cause, but to no avail. It was a bit impossible to identify those shown by sight, considering all you saw was like a spanking arm and like a cover, a completely covered body except for a butt. Catch the wave. <laughs> Unfortunately, the FCC team in Chicago just didn't really want to expend the resources to investigate deeper. So the case was put on hold after a lack of leads or evidence. Put on hold? It was more like put on like, who who gives a shit? Pretty much. <laughs> They're just like, I don't care who did this. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Marcus, he was in Washington, D.C., so he kept on like reaching out to the Chicago team like, can you guys chase down some leads or can you guys like get on the street for this? And they were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so he was frustrated, but there's not much he could do. What do you want us to do, spank him? <laughs> and so the Max Headroom incident was mostly forgotten. Until years later, we'll discuss theories, suspects, and even other signal hijackings after the break. Oh my God, there's more. There's so much more. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts. 
people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Welcome back. Before the break and, um, well, during the break, uh, we've been trying to figure out what's going on with Max Headroom mm-hmm. and the uh, Max Headroom, um, what do we call this, Radi- uh, uh, airwave pirate or? <laughs> um, I usually call it the Max Headroom broadcast incident and it's also called the Max Headroom signal hijacking. Um, for that matter, I'm still trying to figure out just Max Headroom himself he makes no sense to me yeah i don't think we have enough time on this podcast for all that (laughs) thanks to the internet and advent of video hosting sites like youtube a new generation discovered the mystery while the old generation was able to relive it and so the question of who did the max headroom signal hijacking began to be asked again Some suspects began to be pointed to, especially by the amateur sleuths of Reddit, because of course, Uh some some, uh, thought that Max could have been the son of one of the TV station executives due to the equipment required for this signal interruption, or perhaps fake Max had actually been caught but kept quiet due to the TV station's request. And these are just wild guesses, though. Mm -hmm. Even I I love pointing at the... It was probably the kid of the station owner. It's like, yeah, not one of the other dozens of people who have access to that equipment. One Redditor, B. Pogue, put uh, put forth a rather convincing theory that he had known two brothers, who he referred to as J and K, who could have very likely been the ones to carry out the Max Headroom incident. This is thrilling. (laughs) J and K were heavily involved in the computer hacking scene in 1980s Chicago, and during a house party the pair had hosted, B. Pogue claimed to overhear the brothers talking about something big over the weekend. And don't forget whether or not fake Max was being truthful, he did mention having a brother on the WTTW broadcast. Oh my God, it's incontrovertible, Carrie. (laughs) Well, whether or not he was lying about that. No, no, no. How many people have a brother? I don't. I don't. Well, we're not Max Headroom. A hundred percent of the people in this room. <laughs> Later at Pizza Hut, because this is a late 80s uh, story. Of course. B. Pogue asked what the something big had meant, to which the brothers responded, just watch Channel 11 later tonight. That night was November 22nd, 1987, when the hijacking happened. Okay, so this guy won't tell us these people's names. No, for their, you know, personal privacy. So this amounts to a guy who also hasn't identified himself. Yeah. Saying, well, I think I think we know who he is. Okay, but he says that he overheard two guys who he won't identify mm-hmm. vaguely reference the Max Headroom. Mm-hmm. I don't know why he would lie about this. It's not that exactly. <laughs> compelling. He failed to put two and two together at the time, but he later felt that Kay was the cameraman, Kay's girlfriend was the spanker, and Jay himself was fake Max on the broadcast. Why isn't uh, the Why isn't she spanking her boyfriend? I think um, I think I got this right. The Jay and Kay thing it was very confusing, but basically, uh, the mannerisms of the fake Max reminded him very much of Jay. Oh, Jay sounds like he's got some. Some real, I don't know, nervous system problems? I I don't know. One of them was autistic. I don't know which one. Uh, Now I I feel bad for saying that. Well, uh, the thing is, I don't think, and and listen, everyone's different, right? But this uh, fake Max does appear to like be very confident in whatever he's doing. (laughs) No. He is confidently being spanked. Well, uh, just, you know, with all the things he's saying and stuff, and I don't know. Take a big old shit. Oh, no. What, what does he say? A masterpiece. A masterpiece in his piles. I don't know if someone who was autistic, at least in the way that B. Pogue stated that Jay, I think, was, because um, he kind of had to be taken care of by his brother. 
he's very smart and he was like a hacker, but he also kind of needed to be taken care of. So I don't know if someone like that would get in front of a camera right, and say all this stuff. Well, maybe in a funny mask, though. Maybe. And Mr. Robot, there's a lot of uh, uh, socially awkward hackers <laughs> wearing plastic masks. After years of investigation with curator Rick Klein of the Museum of Classic Chicago TV, also you can find that on fuzzymemories.tv. Do you think Mr. Robot is based on this? I wouldn't be surprised if aspects were. Like if he ever breaks into a broadcast signal, that's usually based on this, like for V for Vendetta. Yeah, that was, yeah, you have to think of that too. Mm Mm-hmm. So after the, this investigation, Bipog walked back his accusation and updated the post and said that he felt that J&K weren't the culprits after all. In fact, uh, Bipog stated in his Reddit update that Rick and I have concluded that the possibility of this having been an outside job is basically zero. To make a long story short, all the things which needed to have been possessed by an outside amateur or amateurs, no matter how talented, simply did not exist in the wild in 1987. This, along with other information we were never able to corroborate, is what allows us to free J and K as suspects with full confidence. Free them? They were never, like, well, <laughs> it's like they were know. incarcerated. Uh Rick Klein would continue to follow the investigation, believing that fake Max had ties to the local Chicago broadcast community. Another theory centered around musician and performance artist Eric Fournier, who created a surreal avant-garde web series named Shea St. John, um, and you could find that on YouTube, I believe. And this strikes many as very similar to the erratic style of the fake Max broadcasts. Theory goes that Fournier, who lived in nearby Bloomington, Indiana at the time, originally wanted exposure for his punk band, The Blood Farmers Music Videos. Okay. But at the last the minute... The Blood Farmers, <laughs> a great band name. We, <laughs> well, we can't we're just roll past that. Certainly punk. Uh, at the last minute, he apparently decided against broadcasting one of their videos, fearing that they would be easily identified, obviously, and lead investigators to his door. So instead, he enacted his own avant-garde surreal performance okay however in speaking with vice former bandmate harry bergen dismisses this theory bergen wrote quote this is ridiculous bullshit (laughs) eric didn't know anything about video editing when we were in high school we never made music videos apart from someone maybe videotaping one of our shows we weren't friends with anyone getting degrees in mass communications and had no access to broadcasting equipment I think the only time the four of us were ever in Chicago together was to see a Pixies concert at the, at the Riviera. Sadly, Fournier died in 2010, so there's no confirming or denying the rumor on his end. Hmm. So, who was it? Ben Minot, um, he's the founder of Oddity Archive and an early Max Headroom incident researcher, shared some thoughts with the Bazaar for their documentary. Mm-hmm. Manot, or Minot, uh, felt that those behind the hijacking must have been undertaking some sort of purposeful act of rebellion, even though the statements of the broadcast itself were kind of strange and scattershot. Strange and scattershot. <laughs> those are my words. <laughs> uh, the repeated mentions of WGN in particular stand out, from sportscaster Chuck Swirsky to mocking the world's greatest new newspaper acronym to even the reference to that obscure animated series Clutch Cargo, which hadn't been aired on a WGN for at least a decade by the time of the hijacking. Well, so, but this could be a local who uh, has been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Minot posits that whoever it was had an axe to grind, specifically with WGN, mm-hmm. and was also a Chicago native, as they could recall old local shows like Clutch Cargo, which had been rerun on WGN in the 70s, but not since. Well, and even just being aware of the you know, TV sports mm-hmm. reporter is... <laughs> yeah. um, well, he was the Chicago Bulls announcer, but still. Um, who knows? He additionally felt that if the FCC had discovered solid suspects, they would have at least gone after them, and they were determined not to give others any inspiration to undertake similar broadcast intrusions. In my opinion, arresting or fining someone is more of a deterrent than keeping their identity a secret, because if you can get away with it and literally never be found, even 35 years later, that's more of an encouragement to do something like this than not. 
Well, that's true, but it's also like if the person's name is never known, maybe the story has a harder time taking off. I mean, I'd never heard of this. Yeah, but it's a big internet story, and it's one of those things you'll always find on lists of like weird things on TV, you know, unexplained mysteries. And in terms of just how this was able to be carried out, I tend to agree with the conclusions of the bizarre documentary team. While home video cameras were accessible by the public in 1987, home editing capabilities really didn't exist. And I can think back to when I myself was editing on a sheet, like a shitty VHS desktop computer thing in my school computer lab back in around 2002. Like it must have been one of those things that was there for a year, just in the in between hardware. Right. Um software like Final Cut and Premiere simply didn't exist back then. It was all hardware. There is a cut in the video before the spanking part begins uh-huh. in the second broadcast broadcast intrusion. And the way it's done seems to make it clear that this wasn't an in-camera cut, but rather something that was pre-done, maybe making the whole thing pre-filmed. Yes, I agree. Well, it, it, this doesn't feel like an operation that has like a live cutting suite either. No. So that means whoever made the edit must have had access to an editing bay, which would have been located at a TV station, a film production company, or public access, something like that. And I don't think it's the kind of thing that would have been open to the public, like how some libraries these days have production capabilities to utilize, you know. Oh, I see. Because there's obviously there's no nonlinear editing. Mm-hmm. And so unless you have a professional edit bay, like they only have at TV stations at this point, mm-hmm. and maybe news vans or something. Right. Um, you can't do this except, I mean, the only way you would be able to do that is stop the camera. Like you said, an in-camera edit. Mm-hmm. Stop the camera, move but, move around, start rolling. But again. that wasn't really what happened here. This seems to cement the idea that whoever did this had production or broadcast experience and contemporary connections to editing equipment and likely other equipment needed to pull off the signal hijacking. The Bizarre team also feels that instead of recording live from a roof, as was thought it was likely shot previously in some sort of garage or warehouse where the corrugated metal background could be utilized to resemble max headroom's blue screen background and then later edited i mean only very vaguely does it resemble you Mm -hmm. know kind of what they're going for Um, it seems clear that it is some sort of corrugated metal and they're just kind of moving it around because they don't have the capabilities to do a blue screen i never i definitely never thought they were on a roof (laughs) no They also theorized that at least three people were involved in the hijacking, which seems obvious. Fake Max, the female spanker, and whoever was behind the camera. Are we actually, does the camera move? No, I don't think so. So it could have been. Two. It could have been two. Perhaps there were more, but it seems that to keep a secret like this for this long, the less people involved, the better. Whoever they were, it seemed like they didn't like WGN for whatever reason, either having been previously or even currently employed by them and unhappy, or they were part of a rival network or someone who had simply felt wronged by this TV station. Could be for any reason. People are crazy. The the craziest thing about this is that they haven't taken the, you know, wait until you're not going to get in trouble anymore and then tell people that you did this. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're embarrassed. Maybe. Some of those targeted by the broadcast don't really understand why. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking with Vice, the allegedly frickin' liberal Chuck Swirsky stated, I was just baffled, stunned, flabbergasted. I still to this day don't understand why my name was used. Even though I'm a sportscaster, I keep a very low profile. It's not like I was out there pontificating politically. People always say, hey, are you the guy that's in the Max Headroom? And I'm like, yeah. It's rather strange. <laughs> I'm just a basketball announcer. I don't get why they used my name. People always say that to me. I mean, it's memorable, I guess. For his part, original... But they, don't, they don't say, aren't you the voice of the Bulls? I mean, I'm sure some do. For his part, original FCC investigator Dr. Michael Marcus also has some theories. Marcus told Vice in his 2013 interview knew the gear must have cost around $10,000, but would have been available used on the amateur radio market. There is surplus equipment sold with this capability. I don't don't think it needed a few briefcases. It did need a dish antenna, 
but if they got close to the STL receiver antenna at the TV transmitter, then a DirecTV size antenna might have been adequate. In the radio world, a lot of strange things happen, and you can do weird things once and probably get away with it. If you do it multiple times, there's more of a chance you'll be caught, and we haven't seen this guy for over 20 years. And more now. Um, You know what I've been curious about this whole time? This came in during a a Doctor Who broadcast. Um, Well, the second one did, yeah. Which, obviously, a a British show that uh, uh, has some popularity over here. Mm-hmm. Um, how well known was Max Headroom? Like for the people seeing this in Chicago, do you think they were just like, "What?" Well, again, is he this? was already the spokesman for New Coke, and he had done a commercial with Michael Jordan. So it's weird that kind of who is on the Chicago Bulls for anyone who doesn't know. Yes. So it's weird that so much of what the guy or whoever it was said on the second uh, broadcast intrusion was related to Chicago lore or people. Well, he was in Chicago, though. Yeah, but like everything was. It was about WGN. It was about Chuck Swirsky, who's a Chicago Bulls announcer. It was about, um, I guess you could even link a new Coke to it because Michael Jordan was part of that. Uh, it either referenced a Temptation song, so that's Motown, um, or a, a song by a Chicago soul singer. There's a Chicago like animated show. I mean, it's all Chicago. Yeah, I mean, maybe, um, I don't know what that means. <laughs> Me either. I don't know if we'll ever know the truth of who Fake Max and the other hijackers were. As you said, unless someone comes out like Bpoke did and actually has some evidence, or Fake Max or someone from the crew makes some sort of deathbed confession, like, I don't know, I don't know if we'll ever know. Even that wouldn't be enough. It would have to be like, here's how we did it. Mm-hmm. You know, here was the, per- this is the name proof. of the woman who spanked me. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they're still worried about legal trouble or a mass of internet nerds trying to track them down. But the statute of limitations has long since passed. So I don't know. I don't blame them. Uh, I feel like unless there's a huge incentive to, no one will cop to it unless no negative repercussions could be guaranteed. I just feel if you if you did some data driven, you know, Bill James style <laughs> journalism here um, or police work, um, the cross section of people who are BBC fans uh, who have all these <laughs> Chicago references mm-hmm. um, who like new Coke. Um, yeah, but then you're like, oh, I wonder who's nerdy and a Doctor Who fan. Recently like, bought well. later hosen. This is a pretty <laughs> specific guy. Well, if you do have any leads, please let us know, or at the very least, get in touch with the aforementioned Rick Klein at his email tip line, maxtips at fuzzymemories.tv. It's still active. Mm -hmm. I assume so. The website is. The Max Headroom incident was, of course, not the first time a broadcast signal was hijacked, though. Do tell. On Saturday, November 26, 1977, Southern Television in Britain was hijacked during a news report on the clashes between, in what was then Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, Mm -hmm. uh, between security forces and the (laughs) Zimbabwe African National Liberation Army. A lot of syllables. Yeah. The picture wobbled, a deep buzz sounded, and then the audio was replaced by a distorted voice delivering a message for almost six minutes, which is much more than the combined approximately two minutes of the Max Headroom incident. Yes, six minutes long. Uh, What did they say? The speaker claimed to be Vrilon, a representative of the Ashtar Galactic Command. Uh, apparently, Ashtar was a name associated with extraterrestrial communication since 1952. Huh. Uh, here is part of the message, which can be found on YouTube under Southern Television Broadcast Interruption, United Kingdom, November 26, 1977. For many years, you have seen us as lights in the stars. We speak to you now to service them as we have done to your brothers and sisters all over this, your planet Earth. We come to warn you of the destiny of your race and your world so that you may connect to your fellow beings the course you must take to avoid the disaster which threatens your world. 
and the beams on other worlds around you. Orthon of Venus? Vrilon of it, Ashtar. We, my man's got the same <laughs> message uh, Orthon of Venus had for George Adamski all those years ago. Mm-hmm. Vrilon goes to warn, uh, goes on to warn listeners that the age of Aquarius can be a time of great peace for humanity, but only if the evils in the world are defeated. Weapons of evil must be removed, conflicts must be ended, and false prophets and guides must be avoided. It's actually, uh, as you said, kind of a true warning it doesn't seem meant to frighten people uh, it's n- not like it's wrong i mean we are terrible to each other a lot of the time yeah uh, yes and if we don't learn to work together then eventually we will end in destruction so yeah it's a common thread with alien contact stories especially the ones from the beginning of the nuclear age but but that thread kind of continues where you have aliens always bringing messages of um hey guys nuclear weapons bad And you know what? Good. Because that's a good message to have, I think. The statement ends with, you know now that we are here and that there are more beings on and around your Earth than your scientists admit. We are deeply concerned about you and your path towards the light, and we'll do all we can to help you. Have no fear. Seek only to know yourselves and live in harmony with the ways of your planet Earth. We here at the Ashtar Galactic Command thank you for your attention. We are now leaving the planes of your existence. May you be blessed by the supreme love and truth of the cosmos. Well, that's nice of them. Yeah, that's pretty chill. So they just delivered their message and bounced? Mm-hmm. The kind of television transmitter used by Southern was open to this sort of intrusion, apparently, and it was discovered that someone had ham... Hammed, had jammed the transmitter from somewhere in North Hampshire by bringing another transmitter close to it physically. So whoever this was, um, they kind of knew what they were doing, but they were never discovered either. Just well, like Max Headroom. This one feels like an easy one to get away with. If, if all you have to do is drag something over to the main signal and then mm-hmm. throw up your own signal, you can do that from wherever and then um, get away. Yeah, so who knows? Maybe it really was an alien race trying to warn us of our imminent destruction. Or someone else, but still, it's a good message. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, whoever it was, they were trying to warn us of our imminent destruction. So they, uh, uh, that was... We salute you, Orthon of Venus. What was his name? Vrilon. That's close enough. We salute you, Vrilon. <laughs> Just a year and a half before the Max Headroom incident on April 27th, 1986. Oh, that's... 36 years ago this very day, Sean. Yes, as we're recording this. That is eerie. Mm. Another signal hijacking occurred in America known as the Captain Midnight Broadcast Signal Intrusion. This is Captain Midnight. (laughs) Coming out to all you ladies out there. Well, there was a Captain Midnight, I think, radio show. Uh, He was like the host of it. So you're not too far off. That was what was interrupted? No, that's just the name that this person took on. The satellite signal of home box office, which we know as HBO. It's not TV. <laughs> was jammed showing a uh, while it was showing a film called The Falcon and the Snowman. So not The Winter Soldier, but close enough. <laughs> in the early morning hours. A message popped up on the screen in front of the classic image of SMPTE color bars a.k.a. those neon rainbow no-signal color bars. Yeah. Some of our older listeners might remember them from the more analog days. In front of the image was the text, Good evening, HBO, from Captain Midnight. $12.95 a month? No way. Showtime Movie Channel, beware. That was the... That was the message. Showtime movie channel beware. Showtime slash movie channel beware exclamation point. That part is the part I, I I'm were, were they charging more than twelve ninety five? I guess it was a, a threat in case they wanted to charge more. Uh, it appeared that the hijacker was protesting HBO's rates for satellite dish owners, which indeed at the time was twelve dollars ninety five cents a month. Well, good for you, Captain Midnight. <laughs> The message aired for about four and a half minutes. Then the hijacker relinquished control of the satellite back to the HBO Communications Center in Hopog, New York. 
The FCC and FBI soon began an investigation, and the FCC quickly identified the transmitters and stations equipped with a specific character generator used during the hijacking. I don't know what that means, but I think it's something computery. <laughs> it sounds like he had a, um, I think on CSI, they'd say something about his digital signal. We yeah. traced it back. Yeah, exactly. And this time, the hijacker was caught. It was John McDougall, an operations engineer at the Central Florida Teleport Uplink Station in Ocala, Florida. After the initial information was identified, McDougall turned himself in to the authorities and plea bargained down to a $5,000 fine, one year unsupervised probation, and one year suspension of his amateur radio license. Mm. <laughs> The jamming received much attention in the U.S., with one executive dubbing the intrusion an act of video terrorism. I think that's a little, <laughs> a little dramatic, don't you think? A little, yeah. Uh, if the Max Headroom one wasn't terrorism, then this <laughs> was uh, a, a gift. I don't know. I was terrorized by Max Headroom for sure. As a consequence of the Captain Midnight incident, the United States Congress passed the Electronic Communications Privacy Act of 1986, making satellite hijacking a felony. Under this new anti-satellite jamming law, those hijacking satellite signals were strictly prosecuted, like in the case of Tom Thomas Haney, a technician employed by the Christian Broadcasting Network who hijacked Playboy TV's satellite signal to air fanatical text messages telling viewers to repent and find Jesus. Oh, how dare you. <laughs> it's definitely not what you want well, while, mine watch, ruined. You know, while watching Playboy TV. For McDougal, a.k.a. Captain Midnight's motive, it was fully a protest. In 1983, McDougal had opened a satellite dealership in Ocala, which initially turned a great profit. A satellite dealership? That sounds profitable. <laughs> but it steeply declined following the scrambling of HBO's signal in January of 1986. This meant that you couldn't just access HBO by having a satellite anymore, but rather would have to now subscribe at the outrageous rate of $12.95 a month. And how dare they? Mm-hmm. Actually, twelve ninety five a month is a lot in like eighties money. Yeah, and it's it's even a lot for a streaming service now. Yeah, because of the quick fall of his once booming business, McDougal stated, "I have been watching the great American dream slip from my grasp." I suppose that's enough to make anyone mad enough to hijack a broadcast, especially after he wrote protest letters to legislators and spent a large amount of money to raise awareness about wanting to keep the market free from excessive charging of its services, all to no avail. So after that, he decided to take matters into his own hands. He hadn't already? Well, then, that was, then he did the Captain Midnight thing. Oh, <laughs> To jam the signal, he tested it earlier with a short color bar only intrusion, which wasn't investigated by HBO as it had occurred during the overnight and probably had been deemed a simple mistake. On April 26th, McDougall, at his job at Central Florida Teleport, oversaw the satellite uplink of the movie Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Fantastic. <laughs> as, as part of the evening's programming for the pay-per-view network People's Choice, which used Central Florida Teleport's facilities. It's a perfect film. Um, <laughs> people, Why do people say Florida's so backwards? They had a teleporter in 1987? <laughs> well, teleporting a TV signal to a satellite, I guess. And then into people's TVs. <laughs> yeah. It was at these facilities that he had access to the mechanisms needed to undertake the HBO hijacking. McDougal swung the 30-foot transmission dish at Central Florida Teleport back into its storage position, which aimed it at the location of Galaxy One, the satellite that carried HBO. Mm -hmm. Locating the satellite coordinates was not difficult for McDougal because frequencies were widely published in manuals and enthusiast magazines. So he was able to take over the signal and transmit his message straight into HBO. And interestingly enough, McDougal was born in Elmhurst, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. So it makes you wonder. He would be right out of his probation around the time of Max Headroom. Well, that's fascinating. But would he have a reason to hate that TV station? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they wronged him in some way. 
frighteningly in the aftermath, it was determined that many satellites could be hijacked by amateurs, including that of the United States Navy and, according to the magazine Mother Jones, an amateur hobbyist could hijack the satellites that alerted U.S. military forces to Soviet actions, creating confusion for world leaders and placing the world at risk of nuclear destruction. Um... Not a little, ideal? A little far from Rillon, I guess. I mean, you know, Max Headroom is uh, is one thing. Yeah, well, this that's... Is, this is Duke Nukem, you know what I mean? And that's clearly what made this situation with satellites so much more serious to the FCC and FBI than the Max Headroom incident. And obviously things, um, you know, certain things were undertaken to make sure that people couldn't just keep doing that. So Max ruined it for the rest of us, what you're saying. Yeah, but it, it has happened since. Um, there was some sort of broadcast intrusion. I didn't go too deep into it during an episode of, I think, Mad Money on like CNBC or something that started reporting that there was a zombie outbreak into like, <laughs> and it was like one of those crawl bars, you know, at the bottom of the screen, people were starting to freak out and there's a bit of a hysteria about that. We could talk about that if we ever talk about the War of the Worlds uh, radio broadcast hysteria. You know, um, yeah, I, well, that, that's a definitely an episode at some point. That's mm-hmm. very fun. Um, if people don't know that story already. Yeah. So, you know, despite Captain Midnight's, um, Oh, Captain Midnight. What a wonderful uh, name. And that was the name of a radio DJ you said? I think it was a, like a character or host of a radio show. I could be wrong. Um, but despite him literally enacting like new legislation, Fake Max and his cronies are what we really remember because of the great mystery of it all and how friggin' weird it was. Um, very weird. And and the thing that I have the hardest time uh, marrying up is the unhinged, <laughs> low bu- like the, both the low budget and uh, of the video and the unhinged nature of the messaging mixed with apparently these people having like the expertise needed yeah, yeah. access to professional equipment and skills to uh, pull this thing off the, mm-hmm. the two things don't jive together to me it's very weird yeah so sean uh who or perhaps what kind of person do you think the max headroom hijacker or hijackers were well a lot of the parts of that profile um was that in this segment or last segment this segment um a lot of the parts of that profile were things i had thought as you were describing the um crime do we call this a crime as you were describing the crime and as i was watching this video um yeah he's got to be a local chicagoan um he obviously has an axe to grind with the what was the name of the first station he tried to hijack wgn and the sportscaster was a reporter on that station as well as the voice of the Bulls? Yeah, so interestingly enough, it wasn't the sportscaster whose broadcast was interrupted right. by Max Headroom. It was a different guy. But yeah, I think he, he both worked there and on the WGN radio. Um, I'm not sure if he was there right at the time, but he was the Bulls announcer into the 90s, I believe. So this person had an axe to grind with WGN. I don't know if they cared about the the sports guy particularly. Mm. Um, well, they said he was a liberal and the guy himself was like, I don't know why they think that I wasn't out there being political. So it's weird. Yeah, it's weird. It to me seems like an ex-employee or a d- very disgruntled form- current employee, but th- th- the letter is weirder. I tend to think it's something like that, too. Some Someone with specific issues with people and possibly mentally. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's safe to say. Um, again, the the just shouting slogans. And when I didn't know those were song lyrics and ad slogans, it was mm-hmm. even stranger, you know, when he's just oh, like, yeah. catch the wave. Well, he's not s- like singing it in any way. Like, he's like, love is fading. Like, he wasn't really singing Bright it. piles. He's talking about having the poops. Bright piles. It was a lot. But for anyone who enjoys big-headed, uncanny valley late 80s icons, which might just be me, I don't know. Um. Let's see, big-headed, uncanny valley 80s icons. Uh, Former President Donald Trump. Oh, I don't... Okay. Well, fictional ones. How about fictional ones? Um, I'm going to be doing an Ain't It Kitchy mini-sode over on Patreon quite soon, digging into the story of Mac tonight. Well, you're doing Mac tonight? Did he uh, break into a TV broadcast? 
No, but he is a short-lived but long-loved McDonald's commercial spokes character. Uh, and I think he's funny, and um, it's perfect for Ain't It Kitschy. I love it. Okay, so that's an Ain't It Kitschy mini-sode to look forward to. Something uh, something else coming over on Patreon. Yeah, and Mac Tonight was played uh, in one of his first major roles by genius actor Doug Jones, who you may know now as Billy Butcherson from Hocus Pocus, Abe Sapien from the Hellboy films, um, the Pale Man from Pan's Labyrinth, and just literally anything that calls for a tall, skinny guy to wear a lot of effects makeup. It is um, one of his most horrifying looking characters, and that says a lot. Mac tonight? Yeah. Oh, I love him. Hey, baby, it's Mac tonight. (laughs) So join up and keep an eye out for that coming soon. Until then... Let the mystery go on, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, catch the wave! (laughs) My piles! My piles! So gross. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. It's time for Weirdo of the Week. According to a local media report by Stoke-on-Trent Live, school children in Newcastle, England, are being warned about a man in a clown mask, offering them rides in a white van. Wait, this was a clown mask and not a Max Headroom mask, right? A clown mask. And that's right, the clown panic of 2016 and our 42nd episode of the podcast is back, baby. Now, this is a periodic clown panic, right? Isn't that what we discovered in that episode? Mm Mm-hmm. Came back faster than I would have thought. I think the first one was in the 80s, so. Right, after Gacy time. Around Gacy time, yeah. In one incident reported to the Staffordshire police, a child was asked if they wanted a ride while another pupil was on their way to school when they were left upset and frightened by the occupants of a van who were wearing clown-like masks. What are, that's weird copy. A child was asked if they wanted a ride uh, I, while I, another pupil was on their way to school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I copied and pasted that. Uh, I, I put quotes around it. No, I, was I good. see. I, I but can see that. That's but... directly from Stoke on Trent Live. So yeah, I think, I think they. It's just <laughs> I don't know what to take from that. <laughs> At the end of Where the day, was the other the, child. On the his child way? was asked if they wanted a ride. Where was the other child on his way to? Um, also to school, but they didn't seem <laughs> like it was important. And only and, one of them was offered a ride. He, he was actually going to uh, cut class that day, but they didn't want to blow up his spot. So, <laughs> In a letter to parents at St. John Fisher Catholic College, and this is, it's not college the way we know it. They're like kids. Head teacher Garrett Murray wrote, quote, We have been informed by the police that a number of reports have been received by them regarding a suspicious white van stopping a number of young people in the Wollstonton and wider area. In one report, a young person was asked if they wanted a ride, and another report suggests that individuals in the van were wearing clown-like masks, which upset and frightened a young person on the way to school. Okay, so he was, so, I, I don't know. Local police will patrol around the location throughout the day. I am asking learners, parents, and carers to be vigilant and to report any concerns to Staffordshire Police on 101 or via the Staffordshire Police website or Facebook page. I think two in two separate reports, one young person yes. reported guys in a van asking if he wanted a ride, didn't mention anything about clown masks, and another child said he saw guys in a van with clown masks and it was upsetting. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Any descriptions or identifying markers, such as vehicle registration plates, would be extremely useful in helping the police with their inquiries. So any of our Newcastle listeners, uh, if we have any, I don't know, they should report any clown van driver sightings to Staffordshire Police on 101 or via their social media channels. And to us. 
definitely to us, maybe first to the police, definitely to us. Uh, Cops say that they'll be adding extra patrols to the area and have asked residents, as uh, Garrett Murray did, to keep an eye out for the suspicious van in the hopes that someone might be able to spot a license plate on the vehicle. So if we hear more, we'll let you guys know. But I think just one kid said he saw the clown masks, right? I can't tell. (laughs) (laughs) But one is enough. One is more than enough. It's too many, to be honest. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Yes, as you heard, more Ain't It Kitchy coming soon. And I think we just got up a uh, beautiful mini-sode on the Tenmouth Electron. Um, very sad story. Go check it out. Have a laugh. Um, special <laughs> thanks to our Special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, and Christy Atchison. And Carrie, how do they find us on Patreon? Patreon.com slash Ain't It Scary. And you could probably also find us if you search Ain't It Scary or Longboy Media. B-O-I, Longboy, L-O-N-G-B-O-I, Media. Yep, we make great business decisions and naming decisions. I can't even spell right now. (laughs) See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 